1969 was a very important year for me because it's, it's the year that I was born again, that I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was also a time when our country went through a lot. We put a man on the moon. Richard Nixon is inaugurated as a 37th president. The war in Vietnam escalates, sparking war protests throughout colleges. The Woodstock Music Festival. Now, that was a big thing. That changed music. In California and San Francisco, we had the hippies and the summer of love. In Hollywood, we had the terrible Manson murders. It was in this backdrop, in this culture, that Paul Simon, who I think is probably the greatest songwriter of that era, Simon and Garfunkel, wrote a beautiful song titled Bridge Over Troubled Water. If you've never heard it, you owe it to yourself to go home and listen to it. Not during the service, but when you get home. Um, Simon was a uh, Jewish young man, and he was greatly influenced by gospel music and hymns that he was listening to at the time. And in the song, he tells the story of a, of a person who willingly lies down to become a bridge that someone can walk across in a time of trouble. And the lyrics in the second verse that really struck to me go like this. When you're down and out, when you're on the street, when evening falls so hard, I will comfort you. I'll take your part. When darkness comes and pain is all around, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Now, it didn't take long for we Jesus freaks in that time to put Jesus into the song. And we used to sing it, Jesus is our bridge over troubled water. I think it fits, don't you? Yeah, I, I, I think Peter thinks so too. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, if you have an app, I'm going to be speaking from the ESV this morning, English Standard Version. I just like the literal way that it translates, translates this. And as you turn there, and we're going to, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Uh, you probably have 1 through 12 on there, but we're only going to have enough time to get up to verse 9. As you turn there, let me put this in context for you. Both First and Second Peter were written by the Apostle Peter, probably around 64 A.D., just before he was martyred by Nero. He's writing to real families who are facing real trials. We get from our text that apparently these, these families, these people, were yanked out of their homes, forcibly against their will, and exiled in a far-off place called Asia Minor. Let's read about them. 1 Peter, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, all he's basically telling them is, your trials didn't take God by surprise. This would give them great comfort. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded or shielded through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or the second coming of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is, inex that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, what we don't know, teach us. What we don't live, teach us how to live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. These people have been yanked from their homes. They've been uprooted. They're literally terrified. They're scared. They've become social misfits and outcasts. They're looked at like slaves in the society they're going to be moved into. And Peter is going to write them and tell them that they need to persevere through these trials. And he's going to tell them that they have to stand firm. They've been relocated. Everything around them seems to be coming apart. So what we have to decide is what do we do in times of trials? Now, trials are entirely different than temptations. Last week, Pastor Brad spoke about temptation. If you remember, temptation usually begins within, and it does what? It entices us to sin and to turn from God. Trials are different. Trials are painful circumstances that God allows into our lives for the purpose of refining or beautifying our faith. And so Peter writes to these people and wants them to stand firm despite trials. Now, how can they stand firm? No, they have a bridge over troubled water. They have hope during their trials. And this hope isn't just wishful thinking, um, wishing that something unrealized would happen. Man, I hope it doesn't rain today. No, it's not that. It's a joyful expectation. It's a competent certainty that God is going to fulfill his promises. Not wishful thinking. So what we want to do this morning is we want to look at this text and Peter is going to describe this hope that God gives us through three time elements, past, present, and future. And as we look at these, we'll discover why God gives us hope or why God gives us trials. And hopefully, we'll understand how to have courage when enduring trials. So, Bible in hand, let's look at our text. 
And I think right away we see that this hope given us stands the test of time. Write this down. We have a hope that is anchored in the past. Our hope is anchored in the past. You know, you look down at verse 3, and, and uh, Peter begins this whole section with this great doxology or symphony of praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is to be praised. Well, why? Well, because of who he is and what he has done. He has given us a living hope. And he has given us this living hope by his mercy. Now, this hope is not something that's subjective. It's not something that's based on my feelings or my circumstances. It's based on the very character of God. His abundant mercy gives us this hope. Another question, what's God's mercy? Well, God's mercy is simply God withholding what we deserve, judgment, and giving to us what we don't deserve, and that is grace. So Peter is going to tell us that this hope that God has given us is anchored in two past events. The new birth, when we believed in Jesus Christ, which in turn is based on a past event, the wonderful historical fact of the resurrection of Christ. The new birth. I mean, Jesus talked a lot about it. He said in John chapter 3, verse, I think it's a beginning in verse 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, when I was reading this, I was simply struck. And I'm wondering if you might not be struck also by this wonderful truth of the new birth. Let this strike you and grip you. Believers, we are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. I can't think of a more meaningful concept in the New Testament than the new birth. Think of what it means. It means forgiveness of sin. It means everlasting life. It means transformation. It means I have been given a new standing before God and a new living before others, a new beginning. It's just wonderful. And Peter is going to list three more benefits of the new birth. So follow along with me. First of all, I want you to notice that the new birth gives us a living hope. Verse 3, we have been born again into a living hope, not a dead hope. Why? Well, because we have a living Savior. It's based on the resurrection of Christ. I have a Savior who was raised from the dead and who said, I will never leave you. I won't depart from you. I won't leave you orphans. I will be with you until the end of the age. You see, Jesus is always with us, even in our trials. It's a living hope. Notice also, we have a heavenly inheritance in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. An inheritance. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important that we define what this inheritance is. Now, this inheritance 
is not a thing. It's not an it. Our inheritance is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have time this morning to unpack this, but we could go over to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and we'll discover that not only is Jesus our inheritance, but we are his inheritance. So our inheritance is in a person. We've got to remember that these people were literally yanked from their homes, and they're com- they, they, they basically lost everything. They maybe even lost their earthly inheritance. But you know, these circumstances can't take away my heavenly inheritance. Well, why? Well, it's in the safest place possible, isn't it? It's in heaven. It's with Jesus. It's a heavenly inheritance. And I just love the way Peter describes uh, this inheritance in, in, in verse 4. It's imperishable. It means it's untouched by death. It's undefiled. It's unstained by sin. It's unfading. It's impaired by time. Unimpaired by time. Unimpaired by time. These are descriptors of Jesus. Nothing can take away my hope. My trials can't take away my hope. Disease can't take away my hope. The things we're going through in life cannot take away my hope. It's a heavenly inheritance. Last, I want you to notice that we have a powerful shield. Or some say, uh, by God's power, we are being guarded. The idea there is a shield. God is shielding us. He's guarding us. And the idea here is that even as we walk through this life, every day through this life, that the power of God shields us, guards us, until the very end, until Jesus returns and the hope that is strictly up in heaven is now realized in my life. Trials, the things in life that bother us, the pain in life cannot take this away. And how cool is it? He says, hey, it's kept up in heaven for you. The word he used there means reserved. Hey, we got a reservation, don't we? It's it's, it's like Jesus is saying, hey, I've got a seat saved for you. I've got a seat saved for you. I've got a seat saved for you. It's up in heaven, and it's reserved because God is a powerful, powerful shield. This reminds me of Psalm 1830, just a wonderful psalm. The one God is perfect. His word is is reliable. He shields all who take refuge in him. That's our bridge over troubled water. Jesus, I can have courage in trials because of the new birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My hope, our hope, is anchored in the past. But you know something? This hope, It's not just some heirloom that we we lock away. And we wait for people to come over and maybe we unlock it out of the safe. We take and we show somebody, hey, you want to see my hope? Hey, here's my hope. No, 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 what good would that be? That wouldn't be very good. You see, not only do we have a hope that is anchored in the past, but I want you to notice with me, we have a hope that is active in the present. 
verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Well, this is what we need, isn't it? This is what gives us courage. You know, because we live in the present. And because we live in the present and we get surrounded by trials, we need an active present hope. And we have that. We have that in the Lord Jesus Christ, an active, present hope in him. Now, Peter wants us to know that even in suffering, we can still experience the joy of our salvation. And so, this begs the question, why does God, a loving God, and we've all asked this question, I have, allow us to go through trials. Why would he do that? I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He used to be the president of Moody Bible Institute. I used to hear him speak every year in the college. Nobody knows all God has in store for us in heaven. But this we do know. Life today is a school in which God prepares and trains us for our future ministry in heaven. Trials are some of God's best tools and textbooks in the school of Christian experience. You see, Peter sees in suffering, he sees in your trials an opportunity from which believers can learn, can grow, and can even minister in. So what we want to do right now is we want to look at what Peter says about trials so we can learn what to do with them. And he's going to say four things here, so follow along with me. First of all, you'll notice that trials grieve us. They're grievous, grieved by trials. Now, he doesn't sugarcoat this. He gets right to the point immediately. Trials are painful. He doesn't sit there and try to cover it up, and he doesn't say, hey, just buckle up, buttercup, go through it. He doesn't say that. Peter knows all too well the painful experience of trials. He went through them. He knows what trials go to families, what they do. They're painful. Secondly, notice that trials are varied in verse 6. They're varied. Now, the interesting word that Peter uses here means multicolored, multicolored. In other words, trials come in many colors. There's the color of broken relationships, the color of chronic pain, the color of depression, the chronic of events, disease events in our life that just take us down, the color of financial insecurity. It comes in so many colors, doesn't it? So many colors. Third, don't miss this. Anything you get, make sure you get this. Trials are allowed by God. They are allowed by God. If you scroll down to verse uh, 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Well, that tells me that God knows my trials. He allows them 
and he controls them. God's in control. But, you know, I, I, I had a problem with this little word, if necessary. If necessary. And I was thinking as I was reading this, seriously, Peter? Seriously, God? If necessary? Uh, 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 chips are necessary. You know, cake is necessary. You know, I don't want trials. You don't need to send trials my, my way. Send them somewhere else. Send me some bounty like that. Send it here. Why are trials necessary? Well, we get our answer in verse 7. As we see, fourthly, trials do not define us, but they do refine us. My identity, your identity, is not in your trial or in your situation that God is putting you through right now. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to emphasize that all the way back in verse 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, to these people. They're exiles. Well, what does he call them? He calls them elect exiles. Now, don't get all worried about that word elect. All he is basically saying is, despite your situation, despite the fact that society looks at you in a different way, despite the fact that you're now misfits, you still have the same standing with God. You're his beloved. That hasn't changed. And then he goes on, he says, hey, your trials that you're going through, God knew about it in advance. We're not defined by our trials, but our trials do refine us. Now, before I move into this, this is something that's very important. Trials are not a sign of inadequate or weak faith. Get that out of your head if you think that. They are not a sign of that. It's not why God puts you through trials. He is not punishing you. you got to understand that. Trials refine us. Now, Peter is going to use this beautiful analogy of gold putting in, put into a, uh, what's, called, what's called a smelting pot, and it was refined by fire. And the whole idea was to refine the gold to make it better, to transform it, and to make the gold more beautiful. And that's what trials do for us. We go into trials because God wants to turn us into something beautiful. Trials bring out the beauty of faith that is within us so that others can see our faith. You notice he says that our trials are more precious than gold, or our faith is more precious than gold. And I was thinking, why is that? Well, that's because gold would sometimes be destroyed in the fire. But our faith isn't destroyed. Our faith is more precious than gold because it's forever, it saves us, and it allows us, as we go through trials, to see and love Christ and to believe even though we haven't seen him. Listen, dear ones, we get a little taste of heaven with faith that is refined by trials. We get to see Christ. And when you persevere through trials, you are transformed. 
And what you're transformed into is ministers of suffering. You get to minister to other people. You get to manifest your faith, which is genuine, to other people. Over in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is going to confirm this. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Paul has been writing about trials, all these things he's going through. But we have, beginning in verse 7, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure. What treasure? Well, in the previous verses, it's the treasure of the glory of Christ that lives within us. It's inside of us. It's got to be brought to the surface. To show the surpassing power belongs to God. They're in jars of clay. That's our weak, frail bodies. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying apart in the body the death of Jesus. Now get this, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, in our trials. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made manifested in our bodies, our mortal flesh. That's why we have trials. See, Paul pictures us as these earthen vessels made of clay. They break easy. They break easy. And he tells us that God allows these trials to wear down on us and push down on us. They don't break us, but they do cause little cracks. Little cracks. And out of these little cracks, the glory of Christ that is within us is now manifested outward to all people so that we can minister to them. A ministry in suffering. This is why it is so important that we have a hope that is active in the present. Our trials allow us to manifest the glory of Christ to all around us. A hope that is anchored in the past. A hope which is active in the present. Now notice with me very quickly, we have to move fast here. We have a hope that anticipates the future. We have a hope that anticipates the future. Now, if you were to take this and uh, go through 1 Peter, particularly chapter 1, you're going to see several times where Peter says Christ is revealed, the revelation of Christ. He's going to talk about a time when Christ is going to be revealed. In fact, if you, if you go home this afternoon, I challenge you to do so, read the whole letter. Boy, it's beautiful. Read the whole letter. On every page, he talks about suffering and talks about the coming of Christ, the revelation of Christ, and judgment day. And I was wondering myself, now why is that? Well, I think the reason is, is he wants us to live, not with our circumstances in mind, but he wants us to live with the end to focus on Jesus, not on the things that buffet us. The one time day when we're going to stand before Christ 
you know, Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 12, excuse me, is going to say basically the same thing, the author of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1, three verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the people in the previous chapter, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely to us. Scroll down to verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's us, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. You know, the author of Hebrews looks back to the people in chapter 11. Some of them were sawn in half. Some of them were tortured. Some of them were burned. Some were delivered. Most weren't. They had one thing in common. That is, they lived their lives. They walked their walk, not looking at their circumstances, but looking at a city, looking at God. And the writer of Hebrews and Peter reminds us that we are to look to Jesus. We are to begin. We are to live with the end in mind. You know, as I was thinking about this, and one of the things I struggled with with this message was trying to end it. Um, all I can do is talk to you for a little bit. There are so many families in her church. Man, they're just going through trials. I can't even imagine. They're just being overwhelmed. As a community, we need to reach out to them, help any way we can, and we need to pray for them. Those of you who are going through strong trials and are still in strong trials, they may last your whole lifetime. Please know, I cannot give you six steps to a better life in trials. It's not the way it works. What I can tell you is this, and it's what the Bible teaches. James tells us, don't be surprised at trials. They're going to happen in this life. James also tells us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials because we have a chance to manifest our faith and show the glory of Christ. Prayerfully, prayerfully endure through trials. Because Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, tells us that Jesus' whole life was one long trial. How did he get through it? Well, he cried to God night and day with loud cries to him who could deliver him from death. God did not answer that prayer until the resurrection. Jesus had to live to the end. Last, what if we used our trials to minister to others? Wouldn't that be beautiful? To demonstrate the faith and the beauty that is being refined out of us. And we use that to reflect to people and be ministers of suffering. We have been given such a great hope. And I wonder this morning, may I ask, do you have this hope? Have you trusted in Christ? Do you know him? Oh, I'd love to talk to you about it. I really would. Are you weary? 
feeling small, teardrops welling in your eyes. You have a bridge over troubled water. God has given you a hope, a hope that is anchored in the past, a hope that is active in the present, and a hope that anticipates the future.